Listener Production. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. Our very first episode. We're going to be out on a monthly basis talking everything automotive from news and views, lots of fun and laughs along the way. Coming up in show one, some industry chat, a dive into the latest VFACs. The legendary Jeremy Clarkson is our very first ever uh, special guest. We are not worthy. Plus, a VACC member who was asked by a celebrity once to fix a very unusual set of wheels. That is coming up a bit later. Firstly, let's welcome our panel, uh, headed by a man who has been everything from Kenny, uh, fronted Australian Top Gear, and was also the head of security in a big-time movie. More on that story a little bit later. Shane Jacobson, welcome. Mate, great to be here. Hasn't this podcast got that new car smell about it? (laughs) 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 Mate, great to be here. Great to be here. We also are delighted to welcome um, a man that uh, speaks to everyone from politicians to the general public when it comes to news and information about the automotive industry. He is the CEO of the Victorian Automotive Chamber of Commerce, originally started out in Hampshire, UK, now proudly calls Australia home, but he's spent his life immersed around cars. And Jeff Gwillem, you were on the tools to begin with, really, weren't you? Yeah, I was, Greg. uh, did an apprenticeship. Uh, I'm a body maker, coach builder, commercial vehicle builder, call it what you like. Um, I love the industry. I love metal. Uh, I love the smell of metal. It's a great industry. It's uh, I can't get away from it. Do you trust Shane and I not to take your phone? And I mean, surely, surely we could direct dial Scott Morrison. That would be in your phone, <laughs> would it not? <laughs> no Do you comment. write? Have you ridden with Scott Morrison in the official car, the one with the flag on the bonnet? No, I haven't ridden. <laughs> <laughs> is, is this our first mission? This is our to first to get you we, in we, that car. We, no, it's it's well, there's an election coming up, so it's doable, isn't it? It is doable. Yeah. Well, it is. If he gets voted out, there's no one in the car. (laughs) (laughs) We're out on a monthly basis. So, Shane, uh, each month that will be our ongoing mission to see if uh, maybe Jeff's been for for a ride. Or at least get someone to call in that's been in it. Could even be the driver. (laughs) Headlining the show is a great little segment that my friend has come up with. He calls it Cop This. What's been happening in your automotive landscape, Shane? Well, it's, uh, it's it's some stuff that I find, as you know, Google's a great source of, well, anything that you want to find is there to be found. I found a car that was in Russia and it's had something retrofitted to it. Well, there's two of them, in fact, and they're two identical things. And what it is, is it's, uh, the, it uses the light, the spots where the lights would be, furthest out from the grill. There's two sets either side. The car looks like a kind of a, a larder, almost like a Fiat 124, to be honest, 124 Sport. But what he's fitted in it is flamethrowers. <laughs> <laughs> now, when, now, my mate of mine told me to look at this thing, and when I heard that, I thought, oh, yeah, there'll probably be a couple of metres of flames coming out the front of it. But no, no, it's it's the real deal. If there is such a thing as wholesale flames, he's got them, I reckon, 20 metres out of the front of the car, this flamethrower works. And it's the wicked. second I saw it, I instantly thought of a thousand occasions where I thought I had that. <laughs> I, I wish I had that fitted to my car. So, uh, so yeah, and, and then and then someone else pointed out that I, I assume someone's retrofitted that, but it may be a standard feature in Russian cars. Who knows? 
<laughs> so look at, look at, how great would it be at midnight when you've, you know, some young kid's been out to a nightclub oh, and yeah. they don't want to line up and wait for a kebab for 20 minutes? It's impressive. So it's you, very impressive. You just keep some raw meat in your pocket <laughs> and you just cook it in front of the car before you get in. <laughs> so another one was too. So here was something I think most people know that the Simpsons have predicted so many things. Like, as we know, Donald Trump president when they did that on the show they did that because it was considered a joke joke became reality you know it was when you know life started imitating art and, and there's been so many as well but the thing is um that i've realized is all the car predictions that were made by the simpsons so you know here's this one there's also like so remember marge got a car and this was a decade before SUVs took off. As we know, they dominate the roads and they, and, <clears throat> and they dominate sales too. Um, but they, they come up with a car that Marge drove, which was called like, I think it was the Canyonaroo Woohoo, I think it was called from memory. <laughs> How am I going pronouncing that? Easy for me to say, obviously not. Uh, so that came out 10 years before it became popular. Homer built uh, a monster car with every possible add-on before factory fitted options even became a thing. So there's uh, driverless cars. So it was just this thing that I that forever everyone talks about, you know, the political kind of, you know, predictions they made. But, uh, you know, I'd be interested to hear people tell me more, but I did notice that the Simpsons have, have literally predicted so many car things. Uh, there was one episode where uh, Homer kind of fell asleep in the car and when he woke up, it was, a, it was one of those autonomous driverless cars. He was parked outside his work. So they did all this before anyone even assumed it would so, become reality. So, so, Shane, does that mean the writers actually every couple of weeks, they go down to Ford, they go down to a car manufacturer, they go, look, guys, we've got another show coming up. Give us what you've got. <laughs> where, where are your engineering students? Tell us. I mean, it's because it's weird, isn't it, that all, I mean, even Star Trek, remember the flip yes, phone on Star Trek, yes. beam me up, Scotty? Well, we've got the flip phone. I mean. Simpsons predicted the iPhone too. They had that there as well. So that they're. They're talking to people we don't even know. But there, there was that theory. <clears throat> I, I mean, I don't think you can call it a fact unless someone can ring in and tell us otherwise. But the thing that was wonderful about James Bond films was, in fact, they felt that film creators and film writers, exactly as you're suggesting, uh, or that we're we're guessing, is that that out of the mind of creative people comes these amazing scripts, which then gives engineers something to aim for. That's a reverse engineering strategy, isn't it? it That's is. a really good. Uh, so if you can dream it, we can make it. Yeah. <laughs> wow. How about that? Before we wrap up, cop this. Who would have predicted the price of your Sahara? What is happening there? Well, Jeff, that's why we've got you here to tell us how these things happen. So my my car, <laughs> I've got the Sahara, the, the you know the last of the you know yep. V eight, yep, you know turbo diesel, you know powerhouse, and so I got that for about. It, it had actually been used, like, to the tune of only 1,800 kilometres. It's a demo. It's a demo. <laughs> yeah. Well, believe it or not, it was actually someone from Toyota that had been driving it, and then COVID <laughs> hit, and it got yeah. garaged. So, I, you know, I paid, let's say, 130 for that. But yeah. now they're selling for, like, 170 to 200,000. Oh, yeah. So it, it went supply. up 51%. It's, it's just supply. So you've got con supply constraint. People want these things. Uh, they've got... There is still cash, and you know, ironically, in a COVID economy, there is cash still swilling around in this economy. And when there's only a few around and you can't get these things, people are going to pay for it. It's it's mad. I've got a car dealer that sold a car three times, and it sold more every time it sold, even though it's had longer kilometres on it because of COVID, because of supply. So could I, in theory, or in fact, sell my Sahara now? Yeah. 
make grab two hundred grand, yeah, and on. then buy the new one, yeah, and still have thirty forty sitting in my pocket. You you could, but you might wait eight months for the new one to come through. It depends. You need, and that's what people are doing. They're saying, I, I, if you go on, I'll use Teslas. So a whole lot of secondhand Teslas cost more than a new Tesla, but I can get it tomorrow. And yeah. there's this thing in the society about I want it now, yeah. and I'm happy to pay for it now because I'm not waiting eight weeks. I'm not waiting uh, three months for a car. And there's this insatiable appetite at the moment for people buying things. It's it's counter to what you'd expect coming out of a, a global pandemic. You just couldn't write it. No, and see, and see, now I'm caught in this dilemma that I'm aware I could sell it, drive something else. I've drive one of my older cars for six to eight months and then get the new one and still have cash <laughs> in my pocket. But now I'm thinking, but I've got the thing everyone wanted. Absolutely. So why would I get rid of it? It's, and it's the same in the, in the housing market. Nobody knows when the turning point is. So, you know, Shane, do you sell it now and pocket the cash? Do you wait for six months? Will, will it be worth more? Or this is the question though, Shane, when will car supply return to where it was three years ago, where we've got lots of cars hanging around that's when the price of those cars is going to shift downwards. Looks like an email coming through from Ooh. Mrs. Jacobson. Do not buy another car. <laughs> the garage is full already. <laughs> she said to me, she said to me, why aren't we getting rid of it? And I said, because it's got a V8 in it. <laughs> <laughs> That's cop this. It is time now because Jeff has more or less taken us this direction in the podcast already for some industry news. All right, I wasn't very good uh, with mathematics and statistics at school. Shane, of course, a doctor, Shane Jacobson, was exceptionally good at it. But (laughs) fortunately for the both of us, we have someone who properly knows uh, the diagnosis and and the the inner meanings of uh, VFACs and some of the, the figures that have come out in recent time. Jeff, firstly... Given the pandemic, given COVID and, and so on, we, we have a, a scenario here where the thirst and appetite for, for new vehicles, despite that cloud hanging above us, um, means for, for good numbers. Is there a correlation between you know, vehicle sales and that, that strength we ironically feel in the economy? Yeah, there is, Greg, and the, the banks have done some research on this over the, over the years. The housing market and the sale of new cars go hand in hand. What's happening, of course, is that uh, property prices have gone through the roof, particularly metropolitan Melbourne, Sydney, and car prices and car buying goes with it. So car prices have gone up, used and new car prices have gone up, house prices have gone up. What it does, Greg, it creates this thing called the wealth effect, is that mums and dads, and I'm particularly focusing here on baby boomers, cashed up baby boomers with superannuation. These are very special people because they've got money and they're going to spend it. What happens is they keep reading the newspaper they look in the local housing guide. Their house is worth $500,000 more than it was three years ago. They have a view. They're cashed up. So what they're going to go and do, they're going to go and buy a brand new car because they feel secure. The superannuation is ticking away nicely, and, and it doesn't matter. This is the BMW they always wanted. It's the Audi they always wanted. It's, it's, a, it's a really strange thing, but as that economy moves, any this is why the banks are so precarious about talking about any rises in interest, because it doesn't just affect housing, it, it, it affects car sales and everything else alongside it. So all the time, the, the Reserve Bank is sending out signals about holding those interest rates low. There is still a confidence in the market there, and people will continue to buy cars because they feel secure, they can manage their loan. And baby boomers are special. 
This is the first group of people that are emerging in Australia that have been saving in superannuation for over 20 years. They've got more money than they ever thought they'd have, remembering that most people die with more money in their super than when they went into retirement, okay? So they're, and of course, the federal government have, have, have noticed that and they're trying to find ways to get us to spend that money to actually stimulate the economy. We're heading, heading towards $3 trillion in superannuations in Australia. And and that that cashed up uh, uh, cohort, they're out there buying cars. And this is, this is, I'll prove it. So in July this year, we, we bought more Bentleys than we did in July last year in the depths of COVID. We sold eight more Bentleys in the month of July. We sold 25 Bentleys. This is the new Bentley, $360,000, $450,000, up to $500,000. Chicken feed. Chicken feed. <laughs> Actually, you can use them for a chicken shed if you like. <laughs> Um, so, so it's really interesting, Greg, that we've got, uh, it's a two-speed economy, but the cashed-up baby boomers are the people who are out there spending money and some of these uh, really expensive cars, there seems to be no resistance to buying them. And I just, I need to, this is really interesting. You know, when you look at Maseratis and your racing car type uh, models, I think that there's a push. Your Bentleys and your Rollers and your prestige old cars, guess what? I think they're coming back. I think your status now isn't necessarily in a yellow Ferrari. It's in a classic Bentley, even a new Bentley SUV. They're beautiful cars. And you can feel that movement back towards uh, a regal type of car driving yeah. behaviour. And I, I've always thought that, you know, Australia as kind of, you know, the kind of Holden, you know, forward-loving guy, that I've never seen myself, and my friends have... It's, it's always a, a round of beer conversation. If you won Tats Lotto, would you end up in a Ferrari? And as we know, in Australia, everyone used to say, you know, you get Tats Lotto, you win Tats Lotto, you buy the big house and you buy Ferrari. That was or a Lambo. That was always the conversation we had as a kid. But then we did the, the you know, does it pass the, the beer test, the pub test of, but would you actually buy a Ferrari? And nearly all my friends, if not all of my friends, have said no, that they can't see themselves getting in or out of a Lamborghini or Ferrari. I literally can't get in or out of a Ferrari. I've tried it. It's like I'm like trying to get a hippo in a letterbox. It's just really hard work. But but all of them have said something like that, that if they did have the money, they want to be in something that has class and style and potentially fair bit of power as well. And you kind of end up at Bentley, which is, you, I find interesting. You can feel that. And I, if you, again, look at that demographic, Shane, that's coming through, Not I'm not talking about young kids here. I'm talking about people, you know, one of the reasons that Ford and Holden aren't in Australia anymore, a lot of it's got to do with global uh, manufacturing of vehicles and price of vehicles. Another part of it has got to do with people in Australia saying this, I want a BMW now, or I, or I want an Audi, I want a European car. And when BMW and Audi and Mercedes-Benz started to make smaller cars, what I call the aspirational buyer arrived, and they dropped a locally built car and they went and bought aspirational cars, and that was that didn't help the demise of Ford and Holden and Toyota in Australia. Until they stopped making them, I would buy new Holdens. Me. 
You never saw me do that. (laughs) (laughs) Very commendable. (laughs) Jeff, to your point, uh, I mean, even if you look uh, further afield in the figures, I mean, even Morgan's had a ripper year selling whatever it was, three cars in the in the last month compared to to, you know compared to zero last year. So so they'll be happy. They Uh, must be stoked. I mean, that's a big increase, hey? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, but I guess where I'm going with this is: is this trend sustainable? Whichever point of the graph you're at, the pointy end, or, or even just with a with a what looks like a small amount of sales, that's a that's a good result for them. You know, what are the latest sort of sales figures showing? Uh, well, I'll just just to come to that question first, and I'll move on from that and look at the data right now. Uh, yeah, Morgan sold three cars, 110-year-old company, beautiful. Uh, my research guy said to me, what's a Morgan? Now, he is in hospital, and he didn't come through that very well. It was a terrible moment. Um, yeah. What's a Morgan? Uh, what's a Morgan? I can't believe it. He's a beautiful boy, though, and he's lovely, and he does good work well, for us. Well, his surname's Freeman. He's an amazing actor, but yeah. I don't think that's his point. Um, but uh, in Australia right now, nationally, uh, sales figures are up. They're up 26% uh, on July last year. Um, remembering the 2020 figures are not a good benchmark because of where we were in terms of car buying behaviours. It was click and collect in Victoria. Mm. We were mid, mid, in the middle of all of that. Um, July uh, sales for the month of July this year, still very positive, but we're only up 1.9% on the 2019 figures, which is so, so 2020, bad year. Don't look there for the numbers. Look at 2019. This is the cruncher though, Greg. So let's say this year we end up selling, I think we'll get over a million vehicles. Let's say we end up selling a, mi- a million and 50. We're still not at 2017 figures where we sold 1.2 million. So something's happening. So Greg, we are moving ahead on the sale of vehicles. The numbers are very good. They're very positive. So year to date, we're 26% up, which is fantastic. But what's actually happening the question we've got to ask is, are we ever going to sell 1.2 million vehicles again, even though the population's growing in Australia every year? Where is that population? Are they buying a car? Are they in an apartment? You know, are we going into a new era? This is a big question, Greg, for the industry, where you've got, you know, over 60 different uh, brands and types of vehicle in our market. And how sustainable is that? We've got to ask that question, how many... How low can you get in terms of those vehicle sales across really a relatively stable market? Um, that that's really interesting. Victoria, Victoria, whilst our sale, you know, thirty four percent up on last year, we're still seven hundred and eighty five cars down on our two thousand nineteen July figures, and this is this is really interesting. Uh, you know, this this shouldn't be any secret to anybody. When you lock down communities, it's really hard to buy cars. Now, let's take New South Wales. New South Wales going into lockdown. I think what they've learned from Victoria, Greg, is we don't know how long lockdowns are because remember that one in Victoria? It was going to go for two weeks, then four weeks, then six weeks. Um, and if and the brake lights start to flicker when people get uncertain about how long a lockdown is. Now, they come back out and buy cars after, Greg, but not to the degree that you really get back to 2019 figures. So this is really interesting and we've been very clear to government about this is that lockdowns yeah, lockdowns don't only stifle growth. You don't make up the same growth once you take the, the barriers away. That's probably two years away. But um, you know, nationally, figures are good. Victoria suffered from last year and and consequently that's why we're uh, we're lagging in terms of our, our year-to-date figures around around the country. But you know getting into lockdown 
just puts the brakes on and we need to make sure that governments understand that. But big car sales went through the roof, didn't they? Because as we know, the caravan draggers, which we used to call yeah. the grey nomads, they're not grey nomads now, are they? They're just nomads. It's just everyone, <laughs> people can't go overseas, so everyone started. Like Jayco Caravans, I think, had a, a seven-month wait if you wanted to get Absolutely. a caravan. Because orders went through the roof. Yeah. But it is true now. It's not grey nomads. It's just Australians getting around Australia, isn't it? Look, it is Australians getting around Australia because of the the international travels over for the time being. Mm-hmm. Um, just on, I mean, SUVs are still the biggest category of vehicle sales in Australia, and the five top selling vehicles are all four big four wheel drives. I mean, we, you you can't get away from it. They're they're utes and four wheel drives. Um, but in the absence uh, a, a chain of being able to get overseas, people are doing that. Yeah. Hitch up, hitch up, you know, buy buy an SUV, uh, buy a, uh, even take the ute, you know, it's a twin cab uh, and drag your van around Australia. I, this is what I'd like to know. So we've had booming caravan sales in, in Australia for a decade. Where are they all? So here's the thing I got told, if you want to, if you think you're just going to hook up the caravan and travel around this great nation and just, you know, hop from caravan park to caravan park, it's, it's like trying to get a booking in a New York restaurant. You've got to book in advance. So apparently... If you just turn up hoping to to get a spot, you won't. So you've got to pre-plan where you're going to go, which is not how we used to do it in this country, is it? No, I think, uh, uh, you know, the days of jumping in your car and just taking off and, and looking to pitch a van uh, in a caravan park, I think those days are over. I think uh, a bit like electric vehicles, Shane, you need to plan where you're going. You need to yeah. make sure you can get what you need when you're there. Um, it's uh, It's a different world, but that... You know, part of the part of the car buying behaviour at the moment um, is around cash. It's about people having more money than they thought they would have because they're not going on holidays. Uh, JobKeeper was fantastic, and now we don't have JobKeeper in the same way that we did. But JobKeeper just kept money in the home, and that money does come out. It buys cars, and it buys caravans, and it buys all sorts of things, which is fantastic. Um, but I just, you know. The thing, supply has been one of the major challenges, Greg, that, you know, people are waiting in some brands up to eight months to get a car, and that that's a real problem. Uh, the microchip uh, debacle has fueled that uh, globally where we, you know, we went into we went into lockdown globally. Uh, car manufacturers said, look, we don't, those, those microprocessors, we don't need them at the moment, just just back off. Those companies went and sold microprocessors and, and chips into computers and things you need at the home. Uh, the car company said, oh, by the way, people have started buying cars again. Can we, we want, we're back in, in, we're back on. And the microprocessing and the chip company said, well, actually, we've done a deal over here with, with Microsoft and a whole bunch of other people for computers and, you know, things around the home. Uh, it, it'll be a while. And, it, and you know, if you read the text on this uh, in Australia, they're still talking about a year or two years out before the supply of microprocessors and computer chips into cars get back, gets back to where it was in 2019. And I can tell you, <clears throat> as a man who's regularly gone into pubs, I hate waiting for chips. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jeff, can we ask about a, a couple of other things that sort of stand out here? Uh, I mean, Honda's market share in Australia, that's that's halved. MG, meanwhile, they've had a, uh, you know, an increase in market share. Is that, is that Linked? Uh, well, we think it is. So, uh, as you know, Honda uh, closed down a third of its dealerships in Australia last year. Uh, terrible move. Uh, we were very unhappy about that. And, of course, that almost helped push government to write new legislation that helps protect uh, car dealers nationally. So, um, and, and there's still actions going on about that uh, in regard to that out there in the market. It's interesting, you know, when you look at a brand like Honda, 
Honda actually engineer a really good car. Uh, and, you know, you wonder why you would pull out of a market that's still buying your product. And a, and a good example of that, July last year, in Australia, we sold 2,199 Hondas. This year in July, we sold 899. You know, why would you walk away from a market that sells cars so well? Remembering, Greg, as well, that they're moving to this thing called the agency model. So Honda is, is really leading this. And that's where, uh, you know, it doesn't matter where you buy a Honda in Australia, it's the same price. And it works on the basis that th th their theory is, is that consumers don't want to haggle for cars, and which I, I think actually doesn't fit the cultural identity of Australia. Um, people don't want to haggle for cars and you just go to the local dealer because it's the same price. That's called the agency model that's being tested in some some uh, countries in Europe as well. And uh, that that's where they're going to go. And they've made a very clear statement that they don't want to sell a broad range of cars. They want to sell some some better margin cars, better technology cars, but sell less of them, which I don't know many people that would do that in a market where they're selling good product. We think what we can see in the market, and this again, this is Steve, uh, our researcher back at the VACC, he's looking at the MG figures. And of course, MG is is just going gangbusters. And it's not just, it's their petrol in their, their electric vehicle, but mainly their petrol model. Um, MG really in Australia as a vehicle market, as a new vehicle market, was almost non-existent, uh, you know, five years ago. They now hold 3% of the market in Australia, which is a huge growth. And, and we're sort of speculating that a whole lot of people that would have bought Hondas are, have actually turned and said, well, why don't I go and get an MG? You know, this is the new MG. And, uh, and it's a, you know, you, it's a $44,000 car. You can get straight into it. It does all the things you want it to do. So uh, that's the, uh, the, uh, the uh, uh, new electric. So it's a, uh, and I've driven one of the little petrol MGs. They're lovely little cars. Everything works. They've got all the, the, the things you'd expect in a new car. So, but I think more important here, Greg, is uh, these considerations by manufacturers in terms of the way that they sell cars. Um, you know, Rivian, for example, is a new, they only make a, they make a ute uh, and they make a van. This is a new American company. They raised about f some billions of dollars in a very short period of time. Um, and, you know, this is, this is a market that's changing very quickly because some of the, some of the uh, Amazon, for example, they bought into Rivian. They bought 10% of Rivian and they said, we want you to make 100,000 cars for us. This is a company that didn't exist 10 years ago that is now producing cars and they'll be on sale here next year. But if you said Jeff Bezos has owns 10% of this company that makes cars, why would it, does that mean he's just going to sell them on Amazon? Does it mean in the United States that you'll be able to go on Amazon and say, give me a red one and I want it delivered next Tuesday because, because Amazon owns 10% of the company? Uh, Ford bought in uh, half a billion. Ford, Ford Motor Company bought half a billion into this new electric car company. So everything we see in the environment around us now, so most people haven't even heard of Rivian. Rivian will be a contender for Tesla. People now are becoming less glued to brand. When you go to electric, they become less glued to brand even further. And it's about what does the car do for me? And, and even though I talked a bit earlier about the Bentleys and the Rolls and that, that's a different market. But there's a utility market. I call it a utility market. This is I need, need to get from A to B. I need those buttons to work when I press press them. And as a matter of fact, this is about cars will be about utility and less about status. The power of social media with young yeah. people and their buying behaviours 
Shane, is, you know, you can move markets very quickly now through social Just media. Just got to get one of those influencers. You need those an influencer. Influencers. I've seen, mm. look, I've said it. I've accepted they're part of the world. I, I met one for the first time a few years ago and I didn't know what they were talking about. And I said, what do you do for a job? And they said, I'm an influencer. And I I said, I'm so sorry to hear you got influenza. They said, no, no not influenza. I'm, inf- I'm an influencer. And I said, so what do you do? And they said, we kind of influence people. And I said, all oh, right, like... Mandela and Muhammad Ali and Gandhi, and they had no idea who those people were. (laughs) That's sad. That's sad, isn't it? Yeah, it is sad. But but you are. It's so true. They'll probably put some new electric car will come out. They'll put it in the hands of a few influencers, and they'll tell people. Mm. And uh, and I, you know, I I I think it is true. I think probably people are caring less about brand. I've got friends at the moment who keep ringing me. I think like all of us on 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 the show have friends ring us who go, you know, my wife's looking at a car, I'm looking at a car, what do you think? And and they're throwing new brand names at me and saying, is this thing any good? And what I realised, I, I, my, my a girl who works for me rang me this week about a car and said, is this thing any good? I've never heard of it. But what I found fascinating by that, which proves your point, all I had to do was say, yeah, they're actually pretty reliable and she was going to buy it. Absolutely. So she didn't care what it was. Yeah. She just wanted to know if what it was, was okay. <laughs> But, and she'd never heard of it, but the price was right. The price was right. The price was right. So yeah. she she said, if this thing's going to keep running, I'll buy it. And she and she just ordered it yesterday. Yeah, and it's and it's incredible that based on weekly average earnings, it doesn't matter what people say, the average car is cheaper now than it's ever been. You yeah. can't buy a car cheaper than you can now, and it's hard to buy a bad one. Well, I've said a million times, and I'll say it again, which is my kids have never stood on the side of a road waiting for a service vehicle. Yeah, they won't. They won't. And my kids are 60 years old. I know. <laughs> I look younger than you know. <laughs> we're, we're nearly out of time here. Could we just very quickly touch on, because you both have gone there with this conversation about, about EVs. I mean, obviously, as the cost of them comes down, there's going to be more of them on the road. Federal government is very mindful of this. And, Jeff, they have allocated a significant amount of extra funding to build more electric vehicle charging stations. I, I mean, I think it's up, the commitment is up from something like 16.5 mil. It's gone up by another eight million dollars is that right well the first round uh, is 25 million the total package is is uh, nearly 80 million this is really wow. this is wow. really interesting greg because the federal government have really stood back on the electric vehicle market yeah. and haven't gone in there and uh, in true form what they said early was well, we'll let the market look after that because that's how markets work the thing is there's lots of people where you need electric charging stations where there isn't any infrastructure yeah. and it's expensive to put it in so even Angus Taylor, the Minister for Emissions Reduction, has has worked out if we don't put more uh, uh, more infrastructure in, this money will put 405 new charging stations in the total package. If we don't put them in, uh, people aren't going to buy these cars. And you know what they've also worked out is you can't put one in. You can't put one charging station in. You need to put a cluster of them in so that people aren't queuing up waiting for a couple of hours for people to move through these things. And they've got to be able to do fast charging. You know, you've got to be able to put 50 kilowatts down that wire and get that car charged. 80% of charge in under half an hour, that's what they need to get them moving. So it's a big move, Greg, by the federal government. Um, We've got the Glasgow Climate Talks coming up in about 80 days, Greg. And again, watch that space to see where the Australian federal government really will be under pressure from from governments globally around what are you guys doing? Where is your... We've got a 2050 target. The world is saying, you do, we don't want a target. We want it, we want it mandated. Yeah. 
It's so weird that they did want to stand back like that. I mean, no country says, oh, look, let, let the pilots build their own airports. You no. know what I mean? Like, you've got to back it. I, I'm, I'm thrilled they're doing it because you know, I think you guys know I'm, I'm, I've been involved in the Bridgestone World Solar Challenge for years. And, we, you know, it goes from the top of Australia all the way down to Adelaide. You know, it's the only place in the world where you can get on one road and not leave it and do 5,000 kilometres. That's what's great about Australia. And for the most part, the sun will be sun will be out. But we we were kind of heartbroken every metre we travelled that when all of the stuff that these kids from all, like some of the smartest brains on the planet, that all converge on Australia to do this thing where they push batteries to the limit and, and themselves, to be honest, that all that they're doing to get battery technology better and cars that can run on just the power of the sun, you know, literally, you know, fuel provided by the man above for free and save the environment, stuff that I'm passionate about as a father and as a human. But we're all kind of heartbroken every metre we travel. But once we get these cars on the road, they can't travel that road because there wasn't a charging point. Having said that, they actually get thousands of kilometres on one charge because the sun, you know, they keep rejuvenating. But there is a point, about the halfway point that they needed to recharge. Yeah. And, of course, in Alice there was nothing. Yeah. And we had all these chats going, everyone, this, the kids, on, you know, from around the world are doing the right thing yeah. and the governments probably won't meet them yeah. at the finish line. I think it's a start. Um, I, the reality is you probably need, I don't know, twenty or 30,000 charging stations yeah. uh, across Australia right now. But it's a, I, I, I think it's an indicator and I think it's an interesting position of the government that they've actually decided to back this in yeah. with, with you know, nearly $80 million to get charging stations in. They've released stage one. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because some of the biggest investors now in solar are people that have been in oil for a very long time. So some of those big oil companies, they're shifting a lot of investment money over into solar and renewables and, uh, and 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 very quickly, I think it's really important to say that even if you actually stacked up all the carbon that you need to make an electric car, and all the carbon you need to put charges in, and all the carbon, even if you said, well, actually, you've used more carbon than to run a petrol car for ten years, it doesn't matter. You're just not going to win that argument politically today. No, I agree. <laughs> that is the latest industry news and V-Facts. Uh, this is an important announcement with the owner of a Land Cruiser Sahara currently parked at the EV charging station underneath listener headquarters. Please move your vehicle. <laughs> On the other side of this, our special guest. Each episode of The Grill, we're going to bring somebody special from the automotive environment with a story to tell. And this man knows how to tell stories. He's driven just about every aspirational car in every imaginable, incredible location. From the farm, Jeremy Clarkson joins us in just a moment. Jeff and the VACC team invited us to be a part of this project. They said, we'd like to dive into your contacts in your phone. And I said, look, surely you're not going to want to talk to or interview my auntie Shirley. Uh, But Shane said, look, I've got some pretty good people in the bank that you can talk to. And we are starting this series with a bang. An old mate of yours, he's more than just an industry colleague, isn't he? Yeah, he is, mate. Look, look, first and foremost, uh, I I always say the same. He is a mate, but I'm I'm forever a fan. Like most people, you know, car lovers, I couldn't 
take my eyes off a screen whenever Top Gear was on. So uh, I did. I rang, sent Jez a message and said, look, mate, we've got a we've got a new podcast. We'd love to have you on. He said, mate, I'd love to be on it. And we have got him on the line right now. Jeremy Clarkson, how are you, mate? Well, I'm very well. Well, the reason I asked that is uh, we're going to talk motoring in a moment and all things cars, but you've been running around a farm quite a lot lately. And uh, am I right in assuming that it turns out that farming is not just a walk in the field? I was... I didn't think it was hard. I thought, look, mankind has been farming for 12,000 years. It has to be in our DNA. It's like going to the laboratory. It's just something you don't think about. You just do. Everyone's good at that. But it isn't. It's really difficult. I just thought, well, you just put seeds in the ground and then there'll be some weather and then there'll be food, which I'll still sell. And it just doesn't work like that. So, yeah. So we did a year of that. Um, met some great guys along the way. And um, the series is doing really well. So that's good. Well, I've got to ask you a question because uh, this is our first ep here at the Grill. He's, he riddled me this one. What makes a great car show? Because I think you've got a rough idea. <laughs> well, no, not really. I mean, I know what we did. And everybody, no, it's all, um, I, I mean, it is hit and miss because somebody could do something completely different tomorrow and it would be massively successful. But I wouldn't really know what you did. I mean, I know what we did, which was actually quite easy, which is take the cars out of it so that you, you attracted people who weren't interested in cars, which was our goal, or my goal anyway, because <laughs> I didn't know what I was talking about. Hey, I, 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 what, what I want to ask, you two are being very kind to each other here, but but some of the things that happen away from the cameras, and I think, Jeremy, you may have written about this, a story that involves you two, Shane and Jeremy, it might have been Hamilton Island, golf buggies. Can, can you recount that for our audience? Oh, it was indeed. That was exactly where it was, <laughs> Hamilton Island. Uh, and everybody there is given a golf buggy to go to and from their rooms and to the restaurant, all of which are very spread out. And so Shane uh, is a, a larger gentleman, let's put it. I mean, even by my own standards, <laughs> he's a sort of cube of meat, really, a large cube of meat. And I look faintly preposterous in this golf buggy. And then he didn't see the golf buggy as a means of transport. He saw it as a battering ram. <laughs> and to the point when to the point when he would hide and wait this patience of a saint, he'd lay, wait like a crocodile or one of those lizards, you see. And he would launch himself out of the side turning from behind the rhododendron bush and just I've met the violence of his impacts were, I mean, I'm still bearing the scars today from the endless hits. Or, or you'd be going along, just minding your own business, you'd see Shane coming the other way, and then you'd raise your arms to raise, and he'd simply drive into the front of you. I mean, the proper full speed, which I think golf buggies isn't that much. But when you're hitting, effectively, the Yara Viking that he is, and it, it hurts. So, yes, if anybody ever sees Shane in a, in a golf buggy, just stop, get out, and wait <laughs> until he's bored with his game, and then you can resume your journey. But, he, but here's the thing. You taught me how to do that because you introduced to me what I'm pretty sure is the best sport on the planet, and you already know where I'm going to go, which is car football, which we played oh, yeah. in, in all the live shows. A lot. I mean, easy. <laughs> we did a lot. Including in three-wheeled cars, as I... As recall, we played it in those well, British made uh, Reliant Roberts in the western suburbs in the Sydney. Um, and that was another terrifying one because 
the car was exactly the same size on the inside as Shane. <laughs> so he just looked like corned beef. If you'd have taken off the roof, it would have been like looking into a tin of corned beef or spam. So it was like just being hit by a sort of chain in a plastic jacket <laughs> with three wheels. And he was usually on his side when he was coming for you. That was the other great one. At the start, we made that mistake of letting one of the cars on my team be a HQ Ute. And then we were in these three, as Jess said, these three-wheeled Reliant Robins. And they'd been in so many kind of accidents that they were kind of paper mache back together rather than panel beated. And so the doors were about as strong as two sheets of paper. And at one point, Jeremy went, dashed out of the way with a ball and one of my guys in a HQ ute was coming to get the ball and what Jeremy did was unveil me, but the HQ had already got to terminal velocity and it came (laughs) in the door of the car and as I moved my hand, the headlight was where my hand was on the gear stick and I remember yelling at Jeremy, there's a car in my car. <laughs> I'm surprised there was room. No, it was, um, that was, that, I, I do recall, that was a big mistake. We did the same thing again years later. You were there in Poland, where we allowed three Poles to take us on, and they just didn't get the memo about it not being to the death. Um, I, I don't know what we'd done to upset them, but something. But those games in Australia, because I, I they were just... So much fun. It was the only time I've ever seen James May do something interesting in a car. <laughs> it was the one time when it was obviously in Australia. One of you guys, Steve, or you, I can't remember who it was, got the ball, done a wonderful dribble right the way down. There's just an open goal. And James arrived, having rolled the car, he was on his side, and slid across the goal mouth and deflected the ball uh, away. <laughs> I've never seen a save like it. <laughs> No, I was thinking, who the hell was that? It obviously wasn't me, because I'd have noticed. So it must have been James May. It, it was. It was. It was a grand idea. You'll find it on YouTube. It's astonishing save. Um, uh, yeah, it, it, it nearly killed him, but um, it, it saved us from the humiliation of losing yet again to Australia. The, the, <laughs> the live shows were so much fun, and between Top Gear and, and the Grand Tour, the... the concept ideas and stories. Was there ever a moment, Jeremy, where you went, you know what, I'm not doing that. That That's too far-fetched or that's too dangerous. Or there, were there those sort of moments where you might have put your foot down and said no? Oh, in terms of driving, no, there's plenty of stories. We went, that's too far-fetched, let's not do that. And then some were still too far-fetched and we went ahead and did them, which was a mistake. But um, in terms of driving, not really, no. So I always think if you've got a brake pedal and you've got a steering wheel, you're sort of going to be all right, really. Because you can, you can just think, well, this is a bit fast. I shall simply slow down using this pedal in the middle. Or, oh, no, I'm heading for this tree. I shall simply turn this circular thing in front of me, and then I won't be heading for the tree. So I always think, like, I always think cars are very good servants. They do as they're told, by and large. Um, not Alfa Romeo's, obviously, but, you know, everything else does. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I mean, I've never really been... I mean, in the death road in Bolivia, obviously that was pretty scary because half the tyre was over the edge of a thousand foot drop, which was unnerving. But um, that's, that's probably the only time my heart sort of went up a bit in the car. It I, don't, I don't really find cars scary. But the, the truth is, Jess, I've, I've been in the car with you. you, you I mean, you drive 
you drive fast and well and sideways. I don't think people fully understand, and I'm sure you've had this a million times, and what I'm talking about, I I had my mother-in-law come to a track in Phillip Island in Melbourne, Victoria, and she was just coming to see me film film something, and all I was doing, which... Jez knows better than most people who he wrote the book on it, which is, you know, the high-speed passes where you have, you know, we're driving in one direction and a camera car's coming the other and the passing speed's yeah. a little more exciting. And, jousting, we call it. Yeah. And, yeah. and so I did this, this jousting and, you know, the camera car's probably doing 180 and, and I'm doing about 240 or something. So the passing speeds are over 400. And my mother-in-law was watching just me come one way up the straight, the wrong way, but we'd booked the track out, not knowing there's a car coming the other way. And then as it zipped past me, and I'm pretty close to the lens, she burst into tears and left. Um, really? Yeah. She said, I didn't know I didn't know it was going to be this. This looks terrifying. And we're like, no, this is this is what we do just to make it look exciting. So she but found it terrifying. <laughs> yeah. But it had Shane Jacobson behind that wheel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That would have been a different outcome if you'd have been in golf. That's what you should have given you a much faster golf buggy. Then you would have been less inclined to run it into me at every given possible moment. Um, no, I mean, filming is always when you're on a track. But, I mean, it took me 10 years to learn how to hang the tail of a car out. And then uh, my old colleague, Tiffany Dell, who was on old, old, old Top Gear, an ex, briefly an ex-F1 racer, he eventually got bored of me not being able to power slide a car. So took me to an airfield in the UK and I think we had a Lamborghini Murcielago of all the things to teach me in um, and taught me how to do it in that. And once you've mastered it, it's easy. Um, you know, you just sit there. You can sit there forever. Oh, no, I don't say it's easy. I was once in a Mercedes in South Africa at Kyle Army and I had such a bad hangover. And they had to give me a... Um, we thought the show was going to be cancelled because the weather was going to be so bad. But then I woke up in the morning to my horror. It was clear blue skies. I like, oh, no. And they gave me, is it B12, the vitamins you get injected into you when you've got that? I go, well, it's B12 or B20, I can't remember. B12. <laughs> Which makes you feel completely normal. So I thought, well, I'm fine. I'm excellent. I'd give me the keys. I had half a lap and it wore off. <laughs> And then I said, oh, no, I've got to try and slide this damn thing whilst being sick, which was, um, that was a tricky tricky thing to do. Um, but then again, when we did the shows in Sydney, the outdoor shows in Sydney, somebody gave me one of those racing utes. Yes. And they were just designed for me, really, because you can, you could be sick while doing it in one of those. It's so easy. Um, and I just thought, this is great. And the crowd seemed to like it more than driving it quickly. They just like to see me going sideways and smoke pouring off the back tires. So I just did that all afternoon and then got paid. <laughs> it was brilliant. Jeremy, I've got something that I know uh, you know, which is the rivalry between Holden and Ford in Australia. You've, you're, yeah. You were always fascinated by it. And so, mate, you you well know now the demise of Holden and Ford in Australia as far as Australian-made yeah. Holden and Fords. I mean... What do you think about having it just disappear off the planet? I sometimes have to pinch myself with what's happened, not just in Australia. I mean, obviously, that's the sort of, that crystallises it more than probably anywhere, to, to lose both of them, and so quickly. If somebody had said 10 years ago, they'll both be gone, you know, within the decade, you'd have just said, what? It would have been inconceivable. It would be like saying, well, you won't be able to buy an iPhone uh, in two years' time. Really? I mean, it's just phenomenal. So... 
they have the same thing here, you know. Vauxhall is now part, I mean, I'm getting confused, the speed it's happening. Vauxhall is now part of Peugeot, which is part of Citroen, which some, some has to be part of Fiat. So, and it's all gone, and then we've been told we can't even have an internal combustion engine within the next 15 minutes. So, again, you find yourself, and then the big three in America combined aren't worth as much as Tesla. It's all mad. It's all mad. I, can't, I can hardly believe I'm watching the speed of the death of what we all grew to love when we were growing up. Um, it's just, it's horrible. It's actually horrible to watch. If you love cars, which I do, because I don't consider electric cars to be cars. They're just not on microwave ovens, so I'm not interested in them at all. So I barely review them if I can help myself. So it's very tragic, very tragic. Lots of Aussies really struggle, Jeremy, with the notion of you know GM laying Holden to rest in the in, in this past year. You guys kind of had a had a soft spot for the Malu Ute, I can recall, in one in one Top Gear episode. I'm sure oh, listeners yeah. would, would love yeah, yeah. to know about... And the Monaro. Yeah. I mean, are they sort of the, the... I mean, there's been lots of them over the years, Jeremy, but are they the fave Aussie sort of muscle cars that immediately spring to mind for you? They are, yeah. I'm going to have question. Well, I'd see whether it's got a pickup truck on them or it's a four-door. It was just those big V8 lazy, flopping around, making a lot of noise and looking quite cool and sounding very cool. Um, and to have that soundtrack taken off, you know, it's like somebody's lifted the needle up on a record. <laughs> Don't do that anymore either, of course, but you know what I mean? It's suddenly gone quiet. And you just think, well, it's made life a bit more boring. Yeah, you were always blown away by it, I think, about by the intensity of it, weren't you? I was. I mean, I couldn't... Under- it, it, it seemed to... I, mean, I remember talking once to a friend of mine. He's, um, he's from Sydney. And he's a lawyer. And so I said to him one night over dinner, this Ford Holden thing, which, you know, we don't have really to any great extent in, in the UK. Um, no, not Holden, but, you know, Vauxhall or equivalent. Um, even though it's what everybody drove, there was no passion really in it. So um, I was talking to him and I, he said, oh, yeah, that's just a, uh, what's the, uh, there's a word you guys have, which I've temporarily forgotten. He said, Hogan. Burning. He said, that's a bogan thing. Um, <laughs> you won't find that, really. Uh, outside of the Western suburbs, you won't find it in any circle I mix. And, you know, it's just not, not really the world. He said, I mean, I'm a Ford guy. I've always been a Ford guy. And rather die than drive a Holden. I already drive Holden. <laughs> and then he was... He launched into this unbelievably bitter attack on Holden's. I had him started by saying, oh, it's just a bogan thing. And he's a lawyer, you know, this guy's a very, very cultured man. Who suddenly was a frothing rage bucket over that somebody had even mentioned Holden in his house. And I, I thought that's really bizarre and sort of rather endearing, actually. I mean, we have it with football. Well, you're probably with football, obviously. All sorts of football. But, um, you just don't get... You just do not have that here. We don't even have that in Formula One now. Who cares if somebody sports Mercedes or Honda or Red Bull or whatever it might be? So it was great to see. I used to love it. I absolutely love. And I always wanted to go to Bathurst and see the, you know, the, the fights on the hill. <laughs> You know, I'd love to have seen that because you very rarely see any sort of passionate European motorsport. People just sit and they come here, there, there they go. They come again and there they go. 
They can't, oh, it's no finished now, we'll go home. And the, the idea that I would sit and look at somebody supporting, I don't know, Lewis Hamilton and throw a bottle at his head <laughs> is, is alien to me. So I would love to have gone to Bathurst to see that. Yeah, their passion on the hill, which we used to call the hoons on the hill, their passion was unrivaled. Like they, you know, they'd think nothing of setting fire. You know, a Holden fan would think nothing of setting fire to a Ford jumper. The thing that I thought was a bit strange is they were doing that while someone was still wearing it. (laughs) 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 Well, mate, the one thing I've got to thank you so much, uh, Jez, for coming on the show. I really appreciate it, mate. I know you get a a million calls and a million people wanting favours. Oh, sure. For you, Shane. For you. <laughs> for me. For me alone. Well, I, I you know, I, I know I still owe you for trying to ram you with... Well, listen, I saw you lay out Jeremy Renner, so that's about the last time I saw you, so I thought <laughs> I'd better do it. In the case. He punches <laughs> me in the kidney. Or, actually, it was the other way around. He laid yeah, you he out. punched yeah, me yeah. out in Born <laughs> Legacy. <laughs> he laid you out, yeah. <laughs> Which, and you sent me a text when it when I first appeared on screen yeah. going... I saw I'm, it on the phone. I'm sitting here enjoying Born Legacy, and then you turn up... <laughs> Well, that's exactly right. This is a great movie. I'm really loving. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. The factory manager's taking what he's doing out of a reliant robin. Yeah, that was was a big surprise. I had no idea. Well, mate, the the latest big surprise I've got from you was I got told from someone you've got to watch his new show, he's bought a Lamborghini. And I said, oh, right. I didn't know we'd buy a Lambo. I know he likes them. And then I turn on Clarkson's Farm and there it was. You bought a Lamborghini tractor, which is where it all began for them. So uh, yeah. <laughs> great to see you're back in a Lambo. Yeah, exactly. You're the most the heaviest Lambo I've ever driven. That's a big, well, probably not big, <laughs> by Australian standards, but for the UK, it's a big tractor, that one. Too big, if I'm honest. It is a monster. Yeah, it is a monster. Well, mate, um, thank you so much again. Uh, first episode of The Grill. Can't think of anyone better. In fact, there is no one better to be on it. So, mate, take care and thanks again. Hey, listen, thanks very much. Lovely talking to you guys. Got to admit, I was a little bit nervous there. That doesn't often happen these days, but a fantastic way to kick off The Grill with somebody like Jeremy Clarkson joining us. And we would love your thoughts on potential future guests. We've got a, a big list of targets, everyone from... Dr. Carl to Mark Webber and much more. So you can hit us up on socials at VACC officials or get in touch uh, via the website too, the show page, the listener website for The Grill. Up next, a little more industry talk, but this time we'll kind of go to the coalface with a very special member of the VACC. Delighted to welcome to studio now. He was, in fact, elected VACC president in November 2020, started his career as a mechanic and now owns and operates a mechanical repair business in Geelong. Um, Going to talk all sorts of uh, of issues with him. Mark Aramanko, welcome. G'day, Greg. No pressure coming off the back of Jeremy Clarkson. <laughs> there is no pressure here, Mark. We don't want you to feel that straight up, okay? <laughs> now, you've been, in, you've been in the business a long time. Uh, how have you managed, you know, so far, so far with, without kind of full access to manufacturer information? Because this is a topical point right now, isn't it? Absolutely, Greg. Look, in all my time, which is about 40 years as a, as a mechanic, early days with those older vehicles, we were able to hold the information in our head, work it out as we were going. You'd have a, um, a vehicle manual, which was probably less than 100 pages. Not a lot of information really was required. You fast forward now and the technology and complexity of vehicles requires just volumes of information. That information comes from 
data aggregators such as the VACC technical department and companies such as Haynes. Um, they provide those services and, and for uh, independent mechanics and, and others. When you talk about the, the technology underneath the bonnet of, of a car now, I, you know, last four modern cars I've had, you know, and I, I came from, you know, I've just got old E.H. Holdens and H.J. Kingswoods and HQs where I love lifting the bonnet. All my mates, when they come out of my place, say, come on, open up the hood. Like, it's just a thing, isn't it, that we all did and still do with older cars. The last three or four cars that I've purchased, no one asked me to look under it and I opened the bonnet once, look in there and go, I haven't got a clue what's going on under there and I shut it. So is that is that what your guys and, you know, every mechanic goes through now? I mean, when these new cars roll off the line, and this car's turning up in this country now that, you know, sight unseen, they just turn up and next thing you know, someone takes it for a drive, something goes wrong and it ends up in your workshop. What do you do? Well, pretty much we, we need uh, tooling um, and information which now with these new laws will enable us to, to access. So our guys need to be... Um, armed in that regard so they can repair these cars the way they're supposed to be repaired to keep them safe and and uh, and reliable for our customers. It's amazing the amount of technology and how we've had to adapt and how we have adapted, um, but it's all to do with the information available. I hate to ask the horrible question, though. Are you guys going to on-charge customers, if you will, for accessing repair information? And if so, how? Well, yes, the answer, yes. Um, it's no different to us purchasing a part that we're about to fit to that vehicle. So if we buy a water pump and, and put that down on the invoice, it'll be we buy information from either the manufacturer or a data aggregator, and then that'll be a line item on the invoice as well. Now, EVs, we've talked about a little earlier in the podcast, they're you know more or less the proposed way ahead. It seems the, the, the direction that we're going, Mark, but... From Shane's point of view, because I know how much he loves us, tell us, we're not done yet with internal combustion engines, are we? No. No, it's like <laughs> well, killing the Rolling Stones. Don't let them do it. <laughs> yeah, I uh, myself, so I'm regional. So what I see, utes and tradies and, and long distances and, and all, the, all the, the practical issues, which perhaps um, are, are a different argument for those in the metro area. So um, I think... The EV issue, it's an exciting thing and uh, and I'm sure lots of people will take up the EV vehicle, uh, but what what you'll find is if you've got two cars in your, in your uh, garage, one's going to be an internal combustion engine vehicle and that's the one that you rely on to go on holidays and, and so forth. But where do you take your EV? To an electrician? Good question, Shane. <laughs> where does it go? Well, I'd like to think that they can take it to their repairer. But we've got an issue, Shane, with um, government regulation, well, lack of government regulation and compliance. You know, we, we don't want to see the average mechanic or even apprentice um, being electrocuted on, on these vehicles. So there's a real need for oh, the right, government to provide, to basically to step up and, and provide a course for us to follow. Mark, Mark, are you talking about like a national regulation that says if you're going to work on electric vehicles, you need to have had this training because we understand there's a danger here? Absolutely, Jeff. That's mm, exactly okay. what I'm saying. And we need government to actually respond to that before we, you know, there's nothing worse than saying we told you so. I mean, we would say now, um, we know that people can, can do some damage on a conventional engine, but with an electric vehicle, Mark, I mean, I don't know, you've got mechanics in your shop. 
I imagine you'd want to feel that they, they've got that level of training and it's endorsed at a national level. Exactly. And I have no doubt that we'll, be, we'll have the ability to do the job, but we just need the guidelines to make sure that it's done safely. That's something I hadn't even thought about is, is the amount of power, as in Volte, mm. sitting and amps inside those cars. As we know, you know, when, when, when a young kid, you know, in the old days would go and change a tyre on a truck if they weren't trained, it'd take their life. Yeah. So I hadn't even factored in the safety aspect of it, let alone the training required to get the job done. So yeah, it's a great it's, point. It, I've not even thought it, of it. It is really important. Um, I, I think that government, you know, are moving on this stuff, but, they, you know, we don't want to see a person injured in a workplace. We, we need them to be protected and have a national standard for it so it doesn't matter where you are, you know that the person, I mean, even the car owner, uh, Shane, needs to, you need to know that the person has, has met a national standard and yeah. that there's a level of protection there. <laughs> Mark, before we let you go, we have heard from a little birdie quite a funny story <laughs> involving AFL legend Billy Brownless. Now, he popped into Heighton Automotive, your your company, your business, at, at one time with a very particular problem, didn't he? He did, Greg. And, and look, Billy is a uh, definitely a, a local legend and, and a, a ripper bloke. He used to live in Heighton and... Um, just like your average gardener, he rolled down with a um, a wheelbarrow puncture that we had to fix for oh, him. So, so the vehicle, <laughs> so the vehicle he brought in was a wheelbarrow. Yeah, he did, mate. He did. Yeah. I have to now. This is apropos of nothing, but hey, you said wheelbarrow. My favourite wheelbarrow story on earth comes out of Victoria, which was at the docks. Tell me if you've heard this. There was a security entrance outside the docks and they had a security guard there and every day one of the workers used to come out of the docks at the end of every shift with a wheelbarrow and he had his lunchbox in the wheelbarrow and he'd lay his coat over the lunchbox. And the security guy goes, I know what he's trying to do. He's trying to numb me to what he does. He said, mate, lift the jacket, open your lunchbox, let me look inside. Every day this happened and he's like, mate, the security guard said with this guy, mate, I'm never going to stop asking. Take the coat off. <laughs> let me have a look in your lunchbox. You just want to make sure it wasn't stealing anything. You know what the guy was stealing? Wheelbarrows. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Of course. <laughs> Mark, thank you very Brilliant. much for joining us on the first edition of The Grill. Um, you know, you're, you're a proud... Um, at the core front, or, or the coalface, I should say, industry member and, and the VACC president as well. And we wish you and the team at, at Heighton Automotive continued success. Thank you for coming in. Appreciate it. Final thoughts in just a few moments, including your emails, tweets and social media messages as well here on The Grill. Before we go here on the grill, time for, I guess you could call it the, the glove box in some way, some virtual mail, because that's probably where <laughs> I'll have, have stuck all my, my letters, the snail mail. Um, Shane, one firstly from uh, Anna from Williamstown. Classic car prices uh, keep going up. A few Holdens and, uh, and HSVs have sold for over a million recently. Do, do you think classics are a good investment? Oh, look, this is not the first time someone's come to me for financial advice. I'm the go-to guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, it's one of those things, I mean, we want to be careful about advising people on where they should spend their coin. I, you know, I would like to think if you're going to invest in a car, you're a car lover. You know what I mean? If you like art, you should buy art. If you like cars, you know, we consider them to be a piece of art. But um, as we know, cars cars keep going up. I, I, if I look in the rear vision mirror, um, you know, I don't know what's at the front window, but in the rear vision mirror of, of looking at the money that cars were worth and what they're worth now, as we know, like Malou's going for 
you know, these walking shorts going up for a million dollars. And 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 look at the price. You know, everyone knows the GDHOs that there's um there's only twenty thousand a hundred percent original GDHOs left out of the three hundred they made. Really? Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as we know, everyone says they've got a genuine one, and you go, yeah, that's twenty thousand off counter. There was only three hundred made. But look, the, the I've got some old cars there going up in value. But see, there's two parts to it. If they don't know about cars, I mean, you worry about saying yes because yeah. they could buy the wrong thing. You That's know, right. we, you can. It's like, it's like artwork. If you, if you, yeah, you, you can't say all artwork improves in value. It depends what it is. Yeah, I agree. And you know, we've had this chat. I know off air that you know I've just recently bought an MG and I bought it because mm. I still think they're really good value for yeah. money. I got a. You know, twenty seven thousand for a Mark One pull handle MG. I think that's incredible value for I money. Think it's incredible value. And then someone else, you know, a few years ago would have bought a Walkinshaw, and that thing's, you know, yeah. gone up ten times its value. So, um, so look, I, I, I think they are a good investment. But let's be honest, I, you, I think it's, it's it would make more sense to make sure you're buying something you like but because I, I, I don't agree. care if mine go up in value. I, I'm not selling my EH. Uh, Shane, I think that that is the sweet spot. I've bought a car, it's collectible, but I'm going to use it uh, and, I, mm. and I'm going to enjoy it. And if I want to sell it, worst case scenario, I'm going to get my money back. Yes. Uh, best case scenario, it's going to go up. So I reckon that's a great spot to be in. The MG has white wall tyres. That is a subject for debate on another episode of The Rusty, Grill. You can, no. send, you can send us <laughs> those. I, I do, do feel, I do feel the need, Shane, to run one of those, um, you know, fast-paced voiceover reads saying that uh, if the Shane Jacobson investment prospectus is not right for you, please read all the terms and conditions, yada, yada, yada. Because <laughs> <laughs> we just know someone's going to go, I took your advice, yeah. and that reliant Robin hasn't gone up one <laughs> however, <What>? however, <laughs> so that that gets us to Tony from Ringwood because Jeff, just generally, uh, I mean, used car prices. I think you said it earlier in the episode; they're ridiculous at the moment, aren't they? Yeah, look, they continue to go up. Um, the actual car fleet in Australia is older than it was eighteen months ago. Um, COVID and a lack of supply has done this. Um, that any good used car is going to hold its value at the moment because the, we've we've low on stock, but also people there is a hesitancy around public transport. Um, that'll go at a minimum. It'll go through to next year. Um, so if you if you if you're waiting to buy a used car because you think it's going to be cheaper next month, I'm telling you now, it ain't going to be cheaper next month. It's probably going to be more expensive. So. Used cars uh, are increasing. Uh, new cars are, are doing well. But you, new used cars are increasing in increasing in price, and uh, I, I don't know it, uh, Mark. You know you, you see these coming through your workshop as well. There doesn't seem to be any stopping. And and GUD and some of these organisations that provide parts to the industry, their share value is going through the roof because, you know, if you'd have asked me a couple of years ago. Uh, about the aftermarket and about used cars, I go, yeah, it's all a bit, you know, it's sort of slowing down a bit and we're buying new cars and the vehicle fleet, we're going to get under a 10-year average vehicle fleet. That has flipped. We're now at 10.4 years, the average age of the vehicle fleet in Australia. Car parts are doing really, really well and mechanics are doing really well because they're fixing lots of cars they thought they'd never see again. Just before we go, a quick, fun yarn that crosses all the things that we want to touch on on the grill from automotive to racing and more a good friend of yours Shane you were telling us about this off air launch into it yeah look, I don't want to I don't want to uh, give his details away let's just pretend his name is Tom because that is his name <laughs> 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 it's a bit of a famous story and and it's turned out that this 
guy who's in our neighbourhood is in the story well and truly in the thick of it. His father gave him, Tom, his father gave him at 21 a chassis to, um, I should describe what the car is so everyone knows what a a Shelby Cobra is or most people would know or a Rob Nell. Um, And there was a guy in Victoria called George Vitovic, I think is how he said his name, and he had, he used to make these uh, Python Cobras and and in fact they were so good um, that back when I think it was John Todd was running Ferrari, when the Ferrari team came out, he was shoemaker for the Australian Grand Prix in Melbourne. Um, they actually went, Ferrari went to the workshop to meet George and actually ordered one of these yep. things as a thank you slash goodbye present to shoemaker for the end of his reign with, with Ferrari. Um, this is obviously before his tragic accident. But uh, so anyway, that that's how good these things are. Anyway, my mate, when he was 21, his father brought him a chassis for that and then oh, yeah. said, we're build this thing up. So for the next 13 years, he built this car up and got it done. And, you know, even though they're not a uh, Shelby Cobra, they're still 150 Beautiful. large. They look good-looking cars. Aren't they? And so was George building it bit by bit in the garage? Well, I think they were doing it together or they oh, were going okay. back to him, but he got this thing built yeah. up bit by bit. Uh, they didn't have money pouring out of their pockets. That was kind of week to week. Yeah. So um, 13 years in the process of building this thing, and he ended up with this thing that, like I say, would have been at least 150 to 160 large out-of-pocket expenses to have nice. this thing in your driveway. So he had that thing completed for three months, and uh, and then one of his mates said to him, God, it looks amazing. Can I have a go? So his mate got him behind the wheel, had no idea what, you know, 454 of those numbers under an engine bay will do under your right foot. And three minutes into the drive, uh, there they're going. Blue, green, blue, green, blue, green, flying through the air, spinning through the air, rode the car off, nearly wow. killed him. And I wow. said to him, because I had heard this story not knowing it was Tom. Wow. He doesn't like telling the story because he kind of feels like a fool that he lent the car to his mate. And I said, if you could rewind the clock to that moment. Yeah. <laughs> he what said, oh, you? I'd love to. I said, when he says, can I have a drive of your car, what would you say? And he said, I'd tell him to blow it out his tailpipe. <laughs> 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 so, yeah, three minutes. There you go. Oh, so I, wow. I had no idea that this story I had heard as legend, in yeah. fact, turns out to be Tom. And George sold his building. George is, was in South Melbourne here and he sold three years ago. George Vidovic sold the business. Now, where is he now? Went Someone... to the United States. Yeah. Went to Vegas. Went to Vegas. Yeah. Lovely What's... guy, built great cars down there. Go on, tell me this story ends in, mate. Sold his business for a fortune, went to Vegas, put it on black. Anyway, he's now busking. The, the first bit's right. <laughs> the first bit's right. Yeah, bit right. <laughs> Gents, well done. We are out of time. Thank you very, very, very much, Shane Jacobson, Jeff Willem. We would love you listening to be a part of the show too. You can email us via the show page uh, on the listener website or get hold of us on social media at the Shane Jacobson, at the ACC official or at Thruster One. We release a new episode of The Grill each month. Some great special guests coming up and lots of automotive news and views as well. Catch you next month, everyone. Bye for now. See you on the road, folks. Listener.